<laughs> say solidarity. Solidarity. Yeah. Solidarity. There you go. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California, on KFOI in Red Bluff, Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE in Eureka, in Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, KEPW in Eugene, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI in Maui, Hawaii on KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, we're on WGRN in Palinville, New York, WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR, New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, in Fayetteville, Arkansas, on KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, blanketing the globe five days a week. Usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com, but today you got me again. I'm Nicole Sandler, host of The Nicole Sandler Show, based at nicolesandler.com. And the reason I'm here, the reason Brad Friedman and Desi Doyen are not, is, well, all the details are laid out in a post pinned to the top at bradblog.com. But just to, so you're aware, uh, Brad's not playing hooky. His dad suffered a pretty major stroke last week. And they are off dealing with the issues that really every adult child at some point faces. It's a difficult one. And I let Brad know to take care of his family. Uh, We'll hold down the fort till he gets back. So thank you for bearing with me. Uh, If you feel like giving any feedback, suggestions, comments, feel free to email me. I'm Nicole. N-I-C-O-L-E, at NicoleSandler.com. We have a busy show for you today. There's a lot of news happening. A little later in the hour, we'll speak with Greg Sargent, who writes the Plumline blog at the Washington Post. He's been all over this story about the whistleblower that just gets curiouser and curiouser. That's putting it mildly, very mildly. We'll, We'll get into that story and tell you exactly what's going on. The news out of Israel looks... Well, good, if you believe the way I do, that Benjamin Netanyahu needs to be removed as much as Donald Trump needs to be removed over here. And it looks like that's what's happening. I'm going to share with you a phone call I made on my show yesterday. Um, I like to reach out to average citizens around the world, average people around the world, uh, to get their take on what's happening in their particular part of the world. So I decided to call Israel to find out what an average person thinks about the election outcome. I'll share with you that phone call that kind of made my day yesterday. That's all coming up on today's broadcast. But we're going to start with a story 
that is being ignored by the mainstream corporate media. Go figure. Did you know that almost 50,000 General Motors workers are in strike? Yeah, we knew it. But if you turn on any network news show or even cable news program, you're not seeing any coverage of it. Maybe I'm just missing it. I don't know. But I thought this is a story we really need to spend some time on. So I reached out to Mike Elk. Mike Elk is the founder and senior labor reporter at the reader-supported Payday Report at paydayreport.com. He also covers labor and immigration for The Guardian. But the big news this week, and something I'm really not seeing any coverage of on the corporate in the corporate media, is that 49,000 General Motors workers went on strike Sunday night at midnight. It's the largest strike of industrial workers in the United States in 12 years. Uh, Mike Elk is on the scene. I actually, right now, you're in the Nashville airport, right? Yeah, I'm in the Nashville airport. I just flew in from Cleveland. We're going around uh, touring, uh, with the support of our readers, we're touring uh, different uh, facilities, GM facilities across the country where people are striking. What are they striking there. about? What, what's at the root of the strike? Well, the root of the strike is that GM is a very profitable company now as a result of the massive taxpayer bailout, $50 billion, and as a result of GM forcing the union to take wage cuts, benefits cuts, uh, give up their pension, mm. and... You know, at the same time that, that, you know, workers gave up all this stuff and we as taxpayers gave money to General Motors, General Motors is moving production overseas. A lot of their green energy, green cars or hydrogen cars, they're moving it overseas and they're not keeping the work here in the U.S. And workers are particularly upset about the closure of Lordstown and Hamatrack, as well as other decisions by GM to move more production overseas. So. The strike is in many ways about, you know, GM demanding big concessions still from workers, asking workers to pick up health care plans that would mean they'd have to pay 20% of the premium out of pocket right now. Wow. Um, and, you know, and right now GM workers don't pay any portion of the premiums. Huh. So, you know, GM is really sticking it to its workforce. And at the same time, as they're moving production overseas, they're bringing in more and more temporary workers into these GM plants to replace union workers. Uh, and, the, and the result is pretty catastrophic. Uh, you know, when you bring in somebody who's a temp with no health care benefits working at $14 an hour, yep. you know, you can have two people in the same plant doing the same job. One has a union job with a good pension and benefits. The other has a, um, you know, has, is just making $14 an hour. And sometimes it can take years for those workers that are temps to move up to full-time status. Sure. Sure. Now, when we bailed out General Motors a few years ago, we being the taxpayers, were there any conditions on that? Were there any rules built into their corporate charter going forward that they can't do this kind of stuff? Well, in the past, they've promised to keep production here and they break promises. Mm. So as part of the decision to bail them out and do all this stuff, um, you know, they were supposed to keep production here. They made all kinds of commitments, uh, and they didn't keep production here. It's pretty bad. It, it sounds the that way. Now, now, and people are, are very frustrated about what's going on. Well, as they should so, be. Now, you've been on the picket line. The, the strike kicked off Sunday night at midnight in Rochester. You went to Rochester. Um, and, and your work at paydayreport.com 
covering the strike is is going viral. You mentioned that the New York Times is citing you. Um, uh, one one photo you took of um, uh, the workers taking their positions on the picket light Sunday night got over a million views on Twitter. It, you're having an impact here. And as I said, when I first got you on the line, Mike Elk, I, you know, I'll watch, I watch the, uh, at least one uh, network news program a night to see what the mainstream corporate media is doing. And I'm not seeing any coverage of the, of the GM strike. Um, so you're doing great work. Uh, are there many, <laughs> is, is there a lot of media out there with you ostensibly covering what's going I mean, on? There's some, there's some local media, but the national media is ignoring it. Local reporters in some areas are doing a good job. But take, for instance, Rochester, um, you know, payday report. I was illegally fired in the union drive at Politico and I won $70,000, but I couldn't find work. And somebody said, Mike, you should just start your own crowdfunding thing. You mm-hmm. got money coming in and maybe you can pick up some money, do some work. Uh, and, you know, over the years we've raised, you know, we raise about $50,000 a year off our readers directly through Internet appeals. Cool. Uh, we don't take union or corporate money or any foundation money. We're just funded by workers. Um, and we're able to travel to places. So we got up to Rochester uh, on on Monday. Uh, it was Monday. It was midnight, so it was technically right. Sunday, Sunday night. night, Monday morning. We, we got up there. We, we flew out, flew in last second. We were able to do it with our reader money. And we got there, and the local newspaper didn't even send a reporter wow. down to the picket line. The wow. local newspaper in Rochester didn't even cover it for two days. Oh, my God. That, I'm yeah. sorry. That's malfeasance. It, it really is. Yeah. Well, you're doing amazing work over there. And, and to make matters worse, obviously, it's a hardship to go on strike because you're not getting paid. But now, as the strike was just, I think, two days old, General Motors announced that they would end health insurance for all of their striking workers. Again, this should have been did, front page news. No, warning. no, they did this without any warning, because in the past, when they had gone on strike, the union expected that their health care would last till the end of the month. But then people started showing up at doctor's appointments and getting turned away because the GM had cut off the health care without even telling people. Oh, my God. So literally, we were talking with a union leader yesterday who was telling us about a union member of his who took his kid to get chemo and couldn't go get mm. chemo because his health insurance wasn't valid. Wow. A woman in Nashville went into stomach surgery. She was the wife of a General Motors worker. She woke up. And they said, you know, you owe us $40,000. Your health insurance doesn't work anymore. Oh my so for God. people dealing with serious medical conditions, they're going to get COBRA, but COBRA takes a while to kick in. This is really, really scary and unexpected. And they're going to only get COBRA you know, because the UAW is going to pay the COBRA cost, which is ridiculously expensive, which brings us to the UAW and the whole question of, you know, health insurance, uh, opponents of the idea of Medicare for all tend to look and cite their, you know, hard fought union benefits, which are supposedly great, great, you know, insurance coverage. Um, but uh, it's not great if the employer can just take it away from you at will. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the problem right now is that, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's just terrible. But I think, I think, Workers are really fighting back in a way that I haven't seen in a long time. You know, the only scene I've been a labor reporter for more than a decade. The only scene I've ever seen in my career, like that night at Rochester when workers were walking off the job, was when I was in West Virginia on the first day of the West Virginia teachers strike. And a lot of workers I talked to said that that helped inspire them. 
So, you know, we won all these teacher strikes, and if we can win a strike at General Motors, it could really give the labor movement a new oomph. Uh, you know, right now, union approval rating is at an all-time high. 64% of Americans approve of unions. 72% of millennials approve of unions. Uh, industry is changing, and unions are picking up members. And a successful strike right there could open the door to a lot of union organizing in the South. So the UAW, how effective is their representation of the union? Are, are the members happy with the work they're doing? I mean, it seems if they've come to this point, there's obviously a breakdown somewhere. Well, the UAW is in a period of, of transition right now. Five top UAW officials were convicted of accepting bribes from companies in exchange for concessions at the bargaining table. And the president of the UAW had his house raided by the FBI. Wow. And some people speculate that he may have been involved in this scheme as well. It's not clear yet. Uh, there's still an ongoing investigation. His top lieutenant was just arrested in St. Louis last week. Um, so right now, a lot of UAW members are really upset with their union leadership. Yeah. Uh, and they're pushing for this strike as a way to change the union. Um, and that's had a big effect, the corruption scandal. I was down at a Volkswagen in Chattanooga in June, and their workers voted down the union by only 29 votes. And the big issue that the union busters used was, can you really trust this union? Look what they did. They sold wow. out their own members for bribes at the bargaining table. So a strike could change the reputation of the union and also change the new dynamic of the union because the top leadership is all being arrested in the UAW. Oh, my goodness. Um, so it's hard to have faith in so a union when there are those many problems at the top. Yeah. So this is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of uh, it's it's this is I've never covered something quite like this. I, it reminds me of how I felt on the first day of the West Virginia teacher strike down there in Wheeling, West Virginia. It's It's a new dynamic right now. You win a strike like this, it really would change the dynamic for the ability of the UAW to organize, particularly in the South where they haven't had much success. Sure. In fact, there was just a, they lost a big um, fight to unionize. I think it was a Volkswagen plant, right? Yeah, that's, that's what we were talking about in Chattanooga. Okay. It was a big plant. Uh, they lost by 29 votes. Oh, right. Oh. And the union busters brought up, and a lot of the anti-union workers I talked to said they voted against the union because they thought the union was corrupt gotcha. and they didn't trust the aye, union. Aye, aye, aye. So they face uh, so challenges if the union on. Can win, if they can prove that they're willing to fight a company and win, it could change the impressions that a lot of workers in the South, where they, where most new auto plants are opening, have of the union. Right. Uh, th th it yeah. sounds like a real uphill climb, especially when you have the Republican Party fighting against unions and 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 advocating for. Uh, I don't know, taking away everyone's benefits. Again, I keep going back to the Medicare for All thing. How do the unions feel about that? Do they think that, uh, as I do, as I think most of the Medicare for All advocates believe, that the health care should not be res the responsibility of employers in America? Well, I mean, the labor movement is divided on this question. A lot of the rank-and-file support Medicare for All, although some of the construction unions have their own plans that they own. And a lot of unions are hesitant to give up these plans because they're, you know, a lot of unions own big insurance plans. Right. So some of the union leadership is against it, but I think this strike is certainly making an argument. I was talking with Warren Gunnels, Bernie's top labor advisor yesterday, that, you know, you need Medicare for all so that an employer can't use it as a tactic to hurt a union. 
exactly. In a fight like this. Exactly. And because this is... this is really scaring a lot of people. And people could die from this. People could die of heart attacks or strokes. You know, when you're going through medical treatment and all of a sudden you, you're stuck with doctors, you get what I'm saying? It's oh, terrible. exactly what you're saying. It's it's unconscionable. And it's one of the reasons why I've long believed that employers should have nothing to do with the, their employees' health care. They should be separate. They, it, it shouldn't be dependent on your job. It, it makes no sense. And obviously, we're the only nation on the planet that has a system in which your your health insurance is tied to your employer. And can be canceled at their whim. It makes no sense. And so all these striking workers, obviously striking for better conditions, striking to keep their jobs, um, now are faced with, you know, not being able to go to the doctor. What what would constitute winning in this fight? What are, I mean, we know what, what they're striking over. Is there, are there certain demands that need to be met? And are, is, how does it look? Well, it's not clear what the final demands are. It's obviously a very... Uh touch-and-go situation because, you know, uh, Trump is very scared of this union. You notice Trump in the past has made fun of the UAW, individual leaders of the UAW, but he's in this position now where he's trying to go around and say, well, I'm going to help the union out, but meanwhile he's having secret meetings with General Motors. Hmm. He's scared of this strike, very scared of this strike, because being seen as against the union could kill him in places like Ohio and Michigan. Right where the UAW is, is a part of the framework, the fabric of those states. Uh, and so he's very, very, very scared. And even though, and it's, it's also a big issue in Pennsylvania too. Uh, there's several GM facilities in Pennsylvania and a lot of people in Pennsylvania live near Youngstown, which is right on the border. So it's a big, big, big story. And he's very scared of being seen as against the union in the Rust Belt. But so far, the union leadership says Trump hasn't done anything to help them. Of course not. He's lied. He's he's lied to union workers about their futures. I would think that would, you know, have the opposite effect. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mike Elk, so you're in Nashville now. You just got there. Um, where are you off to when we're done when we're done talking? Well, we were in uh, Rochester. We started off there, and then we were in Cleveland, uh, and now we're going to Spring Hill, Tennessee. Uh, where 11 strikers were arrested yesterday by anti-union Southern cops for blocking a scab from getting into the plant. Oh, my God. Uh, We're going to hang out here for a few days, and then we're going to go up to Bowling Green in Kentucky, where they're actively trying to scab the union. Bowling Green? Wasn't that the site of a famous massacre? Oh, never mind. That was Kellyanne Conway. Uh, uh, Sorry. Um, uh, Yeah, so you're on the road again um, reporting for paydayreport.com. This is a site you founded to really focus on the labor movement, what's happening. Uh, You are 100% reader-supported. There's no ads on the the, uh, website, and and readers are coming through. This is how you're able to travel from city to city to cover the strike. Yep. You know, we rely on readers— Relying on readers means that we can cover things other people don't. Uh, We've been putting out videos uh, that people can find on Twitter. We're going to put them on the website of, um, you know, little kids. There was a video, um, I I hope you can play a clip of it, of a little girl chanting, uh, better wages, more toys. Wow. Three years old. Oh, my God. And it's turning into a big family event. Look, I grew up in a big union family in the Rust Belt. Uh, my mother was an auto worker. She worked at Volkswagen for the plant closed. And, you know, this is a beautiful thing to watch, and, and it's inspiring a lot of people. And there's going to be big, huge ripple effects. And it'd be nice if the media really covered it, but yeah, they're right. not. No, they're not. So it's up to us.
to rebuild the media system, you know, because I'm, I'm sick and tired of people blaming the media and say, okay, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to go out there and build something new or are you yeah. just going to sit around and complain? Well, I got to tell you, know, you, you so we're in good company here because obviously, Mike Elk, you've got Payday Report at PaydayReport.com. You're on the Nicole Sandler Show at NicoleSandler.com. And you're on the broadcast at bradblog.com. All independent media outlets, we're doing our own thing because the corporate media structure won't support us. And and I hate to say it too, on the right, the political right in this country, they do support their their right-wing media, which are, you know, echo chambers and uh, propaganda factories. On the left, I know, speaking for the three of us, we all try to uh, provide real credible fact based reporting and uh, we get no support from the uh, left wing uh, political infrastructure the power people the money people on the left and it's it's frankly a travesty and I think I think that's something we have to have a bigger conversation about I mean look Bernie Sanders is going after the corporate media every day why isn't he using his list to fundraise for independent media good question why isn't he coming up with solutions Good question. Look, my biggest criticism of Tom Steyer jumping in this race when he doesn't stand a chance in hell of winning is he could use the hundred million of his own dollars that he's going to use to to advertise for him, his presidential campaign on television and use it to fund a progressive media network or infrastructure or something. Um, instead, we're, we're left to fend for ourselves. And thankfully, you, it sounds like you've got some, you know, readers who appreciate the work you're doing enough to contribute. I know it's how Brad Friedman at the broadcast and how I get by. We're all based on, it, it's the old public radio model of reader or listener, in our case, contributions. Yeah, and, and the credible thing is, you know, people are willing to pay good money for, for, paid, for labor reporting. And what's really funny is, you know, there's a woman who gives us $6,000 a year, more or less. Nice. And I've tried to talk to her. I'm really scared that someday, you know, some, her, her kids are going to call me up and say, where did our inheritance go? <laughs> Mom spent it all on labor reporting. Right. Uh, and this lady, you know, she had been a steel worker in Youngstown in the late 70s, and she's retired now and, do, and doing well. And she, you know, she sent us a lot of money because she believes in us. And we have, you know, a guy, he's an electronics engineer in Western Massachusetts, Chris Lay, good guy. You know, he sends us a couple hundred bucks every month. Nice. People re- really like this. Um, you know, the type of reporting we do at Payday is, is different than what the labor reporting you see in the mainstream press. We're not debating if workers should be paid well. We're talking about how are they getting, how are they going out and organizing? What does that fight look like? And, and, and the aim of it is to help educate activists on how they can improve and change things. Awesome. Well, I urge everyone, everyone to visit paydayreport.com. Mike Elk, you're doing uh, amazing work over there. And again, you're picking up the slack of the very highly paid members of the corporate media, the mainstream media, who are frankly um, negligent in their responsibility of covering what's going on in this country by not, by ignoring the story. So um, I'll do my part in amplifying it, getting the word out, and and promoting paydayreport.com because it's where you're going to get some great uh, actual coverage of this GM strike. Uh, Mike Elk, keep up the great work. People can follow you on Twitter at Mike Elk. I'll put links to uh, Payday Report on NicoleSandler.com and at Bradblog.com. And I can't thank you enough uh, for the work you're doing and for spending some time with us today. All right. Well, thanks so much. That is Mike Elk, founder and lead reporter at PaydayReport.com. Do check it out. Mike and his team are doing excellent work.
We'll take a quick, very quick break, and on the other side, delve into that very strange whistleblower story that just keeps getting weirder and weirder, and more and more disturbing, too. We'll talk with Greg Sargent of The Washington Post next. I am Nicole Sandler of NicoleSandler.com, guest hosting today's edition of The Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. What the public hears over the public airwaves matters. Without an informed electorate, we've got, well, we've got what we have right now. We do our best on the broadcast five days a week to balance that with accurate reporting on issues that actually matter. We don't always get it right, but we try like hell to do so. And we do it all independently and without the influence of corporate or political funding. But we can't do it without you. Please don't presume others will step up. We need you to help us keep doing what Desi Doyen and myself try to do every day on the broadcast. Please help us continue to do so by going to bradblog.com slash donate to help keep the broadcast going and telling the truth over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. Don't wait. Please stop by today. Thanks. Listen. Want to know a secret? Do you promise not to tell? I'm Nicole Sandler, guest hosting another edition of The Broadcast. So, for the past week or so, we've been hearing rumblings about a whistleblower whose complaint wasn't being relayed to Congress. I hadn't really dealt with the story, as honestly, I had no idea what was going on with it. Well, thanks to the work of my next guest and his colleagues at the Washington Post, the pieces are finally falling into place, and with each new detail, the story keeps getting worse. Greg Sargent writes the Plumline blog for the Washington Post, and it's usually uh, opinion pieces that I, I one of my first reads every morning. This time, Greg's been out on front. Uh, out front on the story about the whistleblower that's blowing up everywhere. Um, On Thursday morning, his coverage continued with a piece about how the new details emerging about Trump's involvement in the story illustrate how his enablers are basically gaming the government to insulate his corruption from accountability. So, Craig, how did you get involved in this story? Well, I like to, like everybody else, I was just reading uh, the coverage of it, and initially the coverage was really pretty sparse. And mm-hmm. It occurred to me that there was obviously a lot of threads to pull on that hadn't yet been pulled on, so I just started to try and uh, frame the story in, in a bit of a bigger picture way than, um, than it had been treated before. Uh, it's really easy to get lost in the weeds on the story and treat it as something about a whistleblower somewhere, but there are much bigger themes here about uh, the various ways in which our guardrails um, for accountability are being kind of bulldozed, and that's sort of what I've tried to focus on. Right. I, I, it is astounding when you when you look at it. I mean, for a few days, it was just like, well, there's a whistleblower story out there, and and for some reason, it's not making its way to Congress. And now we learn that this whistleblower uh, is a member of, of the intelligence community and, and voiced his or her concerns to the intelligence community's inspector general. This is the this is the chain of events that are supposed to be followed here, right? Yes, and, and what's supposed to happen is that uh, if the inspector general deems the story an urgent concern and credible, uh, as the statute requires, then the director of national intelligence must 
send the complaint to the congressional uh, intelligence committees. And the reason for this is, is really key. Uh, they tried to, Congress created this process specifically so that they could exercise oversight. By they, I mean congressional lawmakers. And they set it up so that a whistleblower's complaint could not be interfered with by agency brass, which can sometimes be a lot more political. And that's why they set it, structured it so it goes through the uh, theoretically independent inspector general. Right. <laughs> but in this case, there was a yeah. breakdown because the inspector general did deem it credible and of urgent concern. Um, so it goes to, well, the problem, one of the problems of a myriad of problems is that there's an acting director of national intelligence, not a confirmed a DNI. Yes, His name is absolutely. Joseph McGuire. Yeah. And this acting DNI who didn't have to go through a, a Senate confirmation to have this acting job, um, he is refusing to turn over the uh, the complaint to the House Intelligence Committee, Right. That's right. And, and, and now uh, not only do we learn that the complaint concerned uh, a phone call that Trump made to a foreign leader, but we've also learned from the Washington Post reporting, not mine, the great news team mm -hmm. uh, did this, um, that um, that uh, the Department of Justice was consulted by the DNI and the Department of Justice uh, urged the DNI not to uh, pass it on to Congress. We don't know that much about the process, although I think NBC is now reporting that they won't say whether William Barr was directly involved, which is important also because it's easy to see how he might have been given, you know, how much he's done to protect Trump so far. All in all, what we're seeing here is kind of a perversion of the legal process all to protect Trump from accountability. And we've seen this on one front after another. Yes. Well, today, Thursday, the Inspector General, Michael Atkinson, is, was supposed to testify before a closed session of the Intelligence Committee. Um, and right. allegedly, McGuire is going to testify in an open session next week. Well, just moments ago, The Hill sent out an alert that reads, quote, The Intelligence Community's Inspector General declined declined to share details of a whistleblower complaint that is said to involve a discussion between President Trump and a foreign leader. This according to a member of the House Intelligence Committee who told The Hill. Um, it, it, so the hearing is over and, and he didn't explain what was up? Well, I, I want to try to be a little sympathetic to the Inspector General here. I'm not entirely sure, and I've been trying to figure this out. Everybody's trying to get up to speed on this very quickly because mm -hmm. it's really complicated. Right. Um, but it doesn't necessarily appear to me that there's that it, there's a way for the inspector general to reveal this to Congress. I'm not quite sure how the inspector general could directly reveal this to Congress. Huh. I believe the statute requires uh, the inspector general to kind of, it's it's a bit perverse, but there's a process by which uh, the inspector general goes back to the DNI for some advice of some kind on how to transmit it to Congress if he decides he wants to do it himself. I'm still trying to get up to speed on that. But I think we really need to figure out what the legal requirements are on the inspector general before we read too much into that. Okay. I, I appreciate that because there are rules. Yeah. But, 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 but what, what seems apparent is that the Democrats are following the rules. This administration is not. Um, they are right. refusing to comply with 
uh, congressional subpoenas and telling witnesses not to comply. They're stonewalling on every turn, on every subject, on every investigation. I mean, I, I watched the hearing the other day with Corey Lewandowski stonewalling the uh, House Judiciary Committee, and I was screaming at the TV and on, on the air about why uh, Gerald Nadler didn't find him in contempt at the moment and put him in handcuffs and lead him out. I, I, are the Democrats going to get any oversight of this administration through? Well, I guess I, I would say that they're is a middle ground between doing nothing and full impeachment that's fully supported by the entire uh, Democratic caucus. And and I think what we're seeing now is kind of that middle ground. It's certainly messy and maybe insufficient, but the Judiciary Committee is running an impeachment inquiry in the sense that they are running what appears to be a real inquiry into the question of whether to bring articles of impeachment. To me, the core question here is not, are they doing anything now, but and I think they are doing something now. Okay. Rather, I think the big question is whether the, the uh, Democratic leadership is prepared to allow a full House vote on um, articles of impeachment if the Judiciary Committee votes those out, which I think they're probably going to end up doing. Right. Now, the big question here for me is whether the Democratic leadership has already privately ruled out any possibility of any such house, full House vote. I, I don't think we know. Right. Um, you can see scenarios in which if more stuff along these lines or, or from the Deutsche Bank stuff that, mm-hmm. that various committees are looking at emerges and there's more House Democrats coming out for an impeachment inquiry. Uh, you could see a scenario developing where it does become a lot harder for the House leadership to prevent a full House vote on articles from the Judiciary Committee. Although I should say it's not one thing that may dictate whether that vote happens or not is is whether it would pass. Right. Right. I mean, I think, you know, left Twitter and, and all those of us who want an impeachment inquiry kind of lose sight of this. But there really is a large block of Democrats in the House who don't want an impeachment. And, and that's kind of a problem for us. And that's something that, you know, Nancy Pelosi does have to deal with. It's right. not like a thing that can just be hand waved away. But as you um, point out, Greg Sargent, in your column this morning, what we're seeing is that Trump is abusing powers, as you put it, for notably for reasons that don't appear driven by any conception of what's in the national interest. I, I am in favor of impeachment, not because I think it'll remove him from office. In fact, with this Senate, that won't happen. But it's a matter of protecting the Constitution and the Congress performing oversight on the executive branch, which they are being uh, prevented from doing. Uh, I think it's, it's uh, mandated by the Constitution, and I think the Democrats not doing it is uh, a danger. Anyway, I've, uh, Greg Sargent, I've well, kept I you— Well, I agree with that. Okay. Yeah. No, Go I absolutely agree with that. I just, I just want to make, make clear what I'm saying here. You know, I think there's, um, there's really no doubt at this point that there, that there should be articles of impeachment um, based on what we've seen. Uh, the question is, though, whether it would pass the House, whether those articles would right. pass the House. And, and that's just a fact that we have to deal with. It's a, fa- it's a real existing factor. That, and you can, I, I should add, just uh, I'm a little bit sympathetic to the moderates in the following sense. If they, and these are people who won elections in very tough places, right? right Exurban, right. rural places where Trump uh, won 
one in right. 2016, right? We're talking, and so you can kind of see why, from their point of view, they say, "Well, there's no chance at a Senate conviction," and by my calculation, uh, I, I this could really cost me re-election. Why are we doing this exactly? Um, you can kind of see why that argument's not crazy. I don't agree with it. I think they have a responsibility to do it, but you can sort of see their argument, and and we all spend so much time screaming, you know at them that we kind of forget that they sort of have a bit of a uh, predicament of their own that sure. I think we need to um, be a little more mindful uh, of. Of course. But, I mean, it, it keep taking into account what's going on now with this whistleblower story. What what we seem to be seeing is the Department of Justice and the uh, direct acting, sorry, acting director of national intelligence bending over backwards to protect this president for possibly committing treason. Uh, well, it certainly looks like there could be some extremely serious corruption here. No question. And look, I want to stress that I agree that the judiciary should vote out articles of impeachment, and I'd like to see a full House vote on them. Gotcha. Greg Sargent, I've kept you longer than I was supposed to. I know you're really busy today. I thank you so much for your time. Uh, read the Plumline blog at The Washington Post. Thank you so much, Greg. I'll, we'll uh, hopefully All talk right. again soon. Bye-bye. That is Greg Sargent. Again, he writes the Plumline blog at the Washington Post and is also the author of a new book called An Uncivil War, Taking Back Our Democracy in an Age of Trumpian Disinformation and Thunderdome Politics. You can find Greg Sargent on Twitter at the Plumline GS. Up next, it looks like Bibi Netanyahu is out as Prime Minister of Israel after five terms. I wanted to know what an average Israeli thought about what was going on. So I made a cold call to Tel Aviv. We'll hear that next. I'm Nicole Sandler, guest hosting today's edition of The Bradcast. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Come senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm your faithful guest host for the day, Nicole Sandler of The Nicole Sandler Show at NicoleSandler.com. And while we're mired in our own never-ending presidential primary season, Israel had their elections on Tuesday. But there's still no definitive winner. The Associated Press is reporting, with nearly all votes counted Thursday, the centrist blue and white party stood at 33 seats in Israel's 120-seat parliament. Netanyahu's conservative Likud party stood at 31 seats. Neither party has enough to form a government without the support of the election's apparent kingmaker, Avigdor Lieberman of the Yisrael Betanyu party.
His insistence on a secular government would force out Netanyahu's traditional allies, the country's two ultra-Orthodox parties, and another nationalist religious party. Benny Gantz, who used to serve under Netanyahu in the Israeli army and heads the Blue and White Party, has pledged not to sit in the same government as Netanyahu, whose party, the fiercely loyal Likud, is unlikely to oust him. Needless to say, they've got their work cut out for them. The Israeli newspaper Haaretz, on Thursday afternoon, published a story that says, Israel election results, Netanyahu brought a disaster on Likud. After waging the battle of his life, Netanyahu waged a campaign of incitement and lies, driving away thousands of sane and moderate voters. The article goes on to say, after a crude and thuggish campaign in which he trampled the election laws alongside his son, who attacked every government institution, it looks as though Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is closer than ever to losing power. Avigdor Lieberman, on the other hand, who repeated his pre-election promises, will probably be the key person in the next Knesset. So that's where things stand. It's looking like this is the end of the Netanyahu era in Israel, something that I personally, as as an American Jew, am down with. So I did something on my show yesterday that I've done a number of times when there's breaking news around the world. I want to talk to an average person in the country where the news is happening. The first time I did this, I called um, a Four Seasons Hotel just off of Tahrir Square in Cairo, Egypt, as the, the, the Arab Spring protests were taking place in Tahrir Square. It was an eye-opening conversation with a clerk at the hotel, and I call hotels because they're more likely to speak English than if I just dialed a random number, and, and it was brilliant. And I've done this a few times over the years. Well, I thought this was a really good reason to reach out to someone in Israel. So I opened TripAdvisor to find a hotel in the city of Tel Aviv. The first one I called, I guess thankfully, didn't answer. So I called the next hotel on the list, and here's what happened. So now we're calling a different hotel in Tel Aviv. It's the Vera, five-star, 490 reviews. Okay, here we go. It's ringing. And I just want to talk to an average person to see what they think. I have no idea, obviously, who's going to... The Vera. Hello? Hello? Hi, is this the Vera? Hello? Hello? Hi, hi. Can you hear me Okay. Uh, yeah, you're breaking up, though. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, my name's Nicole. I, I'm calling from the United States. I do a radio show. And we're covering the elections over there. And I was just curious to know what you might think about what's going on. Is it going to be Netanyahu? Is he going to be out? Are you happy about that? What, what's happening over there? Well, uh, Tel Aviv hopes he's going to be out. <laughs> yeah, United States hopes he's going to be out, too. So do you? Yeah, I, oh, yeah. I'm so happy to hear. Oh my goodness! We look. We can't stand Donald Trump over here. I'm so sorry that we foisted him on the rest of the world. It was certainly not my intention. Yeah. How did this happen, though? How did this happen? Um, uh, you know, people get apathetic and they don't turn out to vote. I noticed in Israel, you guys had a 69 percent voter turnout. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, you think? I, I thought that it's actually low. Yeah. Like, uh, they should, they think they should 
loads much more than that. Well, they should. And and they should. And they didn't over here. And that's why we wound up with Trump. Plus, the Democrats, frankly, nominated the worst possible candidate to run against Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And so we were just screwed no matter how you look at it. Um, But I'm interested in in Benny Gantz. Is he going to be a a, a peacemaker over there? Are things going to get better under him? Is he going to have some respect for the people in the Gaza Strip or anything? What's going to happen? Do you know? Um, You know, talking about peace, it's uh, very complicated. And I think first place, in order to get peace, from Israeli side, we need to consider there are Arabs and there is Arabic language, and we should connect with them. We don't. Right. So it's not just them or just us. It's both sides. Yes, and I understand that what, what Netanyahu was, was promoting was if he won re-election, he was going to um, um, uh, take over more of the, the occupied territories, more of the West Bank, and annex them, and really putting an end to the possibility of a two-state solution. I'm so glad. Look, I, I called this hotel at random. I had no idea who was going to answer the phone. I'm thrilled it was you and that we got this response. Are you, I mean, are most of your friends obviously feel this way too? Uh, I believe so. Tel Aviv is actually very open-minded city. That's what I heard, yeah. It's very different. The whole city mostly voted for Gantz, but this election also, uh, we're in a situation when we want just BB to be out, so it doesn't matter who we vote for, it's just getting rid of BB, pretty much. Please. And and I hope that next November we can send Donald Trump to the same island you're going to exile BB to. Please, please do. <laughs> I would love nothing more. You know, I got to tell you, you know, over here, um, the, the idea of Israel is sort of, you know, it's vilified by a lot of people because of Netanyahu. The same way, look, I tell people in other countries, uh, Please don't, you know, think of the United States as the land of Trump. We're we're better than that. And most of us really can't stand the man. And we're thoroughly embarrassed by him. I mean, I feel like I need to apologize to the whole world. So uh, Israel gets a bad rap over here because of the leadership of Netanyahu. I'm hoping that under a new government, as I understand um, what uh, um, Gantz is saying, is he will not work with Likud if the party is continued to be led by Netanyahu and he wants to put together a, a government that doesn't include uh, the, the Orthodox uh, sect or the religious sect, he wants it to be a secular government. Is, exactly. that, a, is that a good thing? Yes. Yeah. It's a great thing, but I don't really see it's possible because uh, the Orthodox party, they have a lot of influence. These people, they have 10 children in the family. So imagine the amount of votes they're getting. Mm. Yes. And it's a huge, huge power. And these people, they don't uh, serve in the army. They don't pay taxes. Mm. They don't work. They only getting and getting and getting from the government. Pretty much Tel Aviv sponsors all this. Um, I want to be politically correct, but I can't. That's okay. Crap. I, I hear you. I, I'm right with you. What, what, I'm sorry, what's your first name? My name is Elizabeth. Elizabeth, I, I'm Nicole. It is so nice to meet you. I, you know, I, I've, my daughter, my, I, we're Jewish. My family is Jewish. And we, there's a program over here in the U.S. Um, called Birthright. 
uh, you probably know about it, where anybody oh, yeah, uh, who's course. Jewish is, is flown over there, given a trip to Israel. I and mean, I have a daughter who's 20. And frankly, I've been a little nervous. I mean, it's something that I would love for her to partake of. Um, but you, we hear horror stories over here. D- would you recommend that I send my daughter over there to, to visit and maybe come and say hi to you? Listen, birthright is a great trip for a free trip. Yes. Ten days, everything is for free. You're uh-huh. just giving a tip for the driver. Exactly. That's great. Right. There's also a lot of propaganda, which yes. you're getting anywhere when you get free stuff, in yeah. a school, anywhere. Uh, just keeping in mind that this is not what reality is. It's sure. just one site, yeah. one story, and... That's pretty much it. Then she can see her own reality if she stays for longer. It's not a bad thing, but I think that American Taklit is very organized, much better than the Russian one, because okay. I did the Russian one, and oh. it was pretty horrible. Okay. Well, that's good to know. And so I, I would have to do my part in educating her about both sides of what's going on over there and let her know she's going to hear one side of it, of course, propaganda, because that's the whole point behind these birthright trips is they want to promote Israel to a new young generation of Jews. Basically. Yeah, but Israel is so different. Like, right now you call to the hotel in Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv is uh-huh. not Israel. Tel Aviv is so different. We call it an independent state of Tel Aviv. Oh. This is not Israel. It's something else, and it's so much better. Uh, and she will see it herself. She, You can easily spot the difference. Yeah. Okay, well, I've never been there and either. So the one of these days, I would love to. Oh, and and really? I got to tell you, yeah, I, I'm. I, you I, should come I, to this hotel. I we would. have a wine machine, which is complimentary. <laughs> really? We have amazing beach. We have great food wow. and awesome people. Wow, it sounds great. And Elizabeth, I would love to meet you. So hopefully, I will get over there one of these days. The Vera in Tel Aviv, you're awesome. I, I'm so happy I called this number. Um, thank you for your time today. Let me just ask you. I know it's it's about ten. 10 o'clock, 10.20 at night over there. What is the latest you're hearing? Because what we're hearing over here is that it's virtually tied and that Lieberman basically is going to get to make the decision as to which side he wants to work with. Is that is that the latest you're hearing or, or what is the news? Yes, exactly. This is what everyone is waiting for, some Russian guy to decide <laughs> <laughs> who he's going to go for. Uh, nobody thought about this. Wow. Lieberman is also quite a character. (laughs) Well, awesome. Let's hope for the best. I'm sorry? Let's hope for the best. Absolutely. Um, And that means goodbye, Bibi. Your history, let's move on. And then the next step after that is is so long, Trump. Uh, We're working on it. We, we are working on it. Yes. Elizabeth, yes. at the Vera Hotel in Tel Aviv, you are awesome. Thank you so much for taking my call, and thank you for talking with us. What a pleasure this has been. Thank you very much, Nicole. All right. Have you, fun with Trump. <laughs> oh, God. We're just trying to stay alive. That's all. Trying to stay alive. And then put somebody great in. Him. Like we, we, I, I support Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, and I think the world will thank us if we, if we uh, elect either one of those. So we'll do our part. And I'm glad you did yours. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much. Shalom. Bye, Elizabeth. Bye-bye. Shabbat shalom. Bye-bye. Bye. Um, Okay, see, I told you. Now, sometimes those don't work, those calls. But when they do, they're pretty awesome. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I couldn't have scripted it any better than that. So uh, we'll see what happens.
Ugh, I didn't mean to quote Donald Trump there or anything. All right, there's other news that we haven't gotten to yet. So Secretary of State Mike Pompeo on Wednesday officially accused Iran of, quote, an act of war for their alleged strike on oil facilities in Saudi Arabia. He made the remarks while traveling to Jeddah to consult with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman about how to respond to the attack. For his part, Donald Trump said he wasn't keen to order anything that might embroil the U.S. in military action in the Middle East. And he defended his caution against criticism by some conservatives that the U.S. appears weak to the Iranians. He said, it's a sign of strength. No, I actually think it's a sign of strength. We have the strongest military in the world now. And uh, I think it's a great sign of strength. It's very easy to attack. Uh, But if you ask Lindsay, ask him, how did going into the Middle East, how did that work out? And how did going into Iraq work out? So uh, we have a disagreement on that. And, uh, you know, there's plenty of time to do some dastardly things. It's very easy to start. And we'll see what happens. In Jeddah, Saudi officials displayed what they said was evidence that Iran was responsible for Saturday's missile and drone strikes. Iran continues to deny involvement in the attacks. By the way, if you doubt the veracity of the Trump administration's claims, you're not alone. Japanese Defense Minister Taro Kono told reporters Wednesday that he's not seen any intelligence indicating that Iran was behind those attacks, contradicting Saudi and Trump administration claims. Quote, we are not aware of any information that points to Iran, he said. We believe that the Houthis carried out the attack based on the statement claiming responsibility. And French Foreign Minister Jean-Yves Ladrion said Tuesday that he's not aware of evidence demonstrating Iranian involvement. Quote, up to now, France doesn't have proof permitting it to say these drones came from such and such a place. And I don't know if anyone is proof. We need a strategy of de-escalation for the area. And any move that goes against this de-escalation would be a bad move for the situation in the region. And isn't it ironic? Don't you While en route to Saudi Arabia, Mike Pompeo spoke with reporters off camera and offered them some advice, telling reporters to make sure they label those who regularly lie as liars. I'm not making this up. The exchange was about reporting on the Houthis. And here's the direct quote. When you report about them and you say the Houthis said, you should say, The well-known, frequently lying Houthis have said the following. This is important because you ought not report them as if these truth-tellers, as if these people who aren't completely under the boot of the Iranians and who would not, at the direction of the Iranians, lay claim to attacks that they did not engage in, which clearly was the case here. So there you go. Whenever you say Houthis, you should begin with the well-known, frequently known to lie Houthis, And then you can write whatever it is they say. And that'd be good reporting. (laughs) Laughter. And I know you care deeply about that good reporting. I couldn't make this stuff up. By the way, Donald Trump on Wednesday named his fourth national security advisor, a lawyer who had previously worked with John Bolton and (laughs) was the special envoy for hostage affairs who oversaw the ASAP Rocky trial in Sweden. Seriously. As the world prepares for Friday's global climate strike, we're in peak hurricane season. 
Most of Bermuda is in the dark Thursday morning after Hurricane Humberto brushed by the island. About 80% of Bermuda is without power knocked out by the 120-mile-per-hour winds. That storm has moved farther out into the Atlantic and will weaken and become a post-tropical cyclone by Friday. Meanwhile, tropical depression Imelda is slowly making its way to Louisiana after soaking parts of southeastern Texas. Imelda dumped so much rain there that emergency crews had to conduct rescues of people trapped by floodwaters. Some good breaking news on Thursday. According to AmericanMilitaryNews.com, who apparently broke the story, Colt Firearms will be ending its production and sales of its AR-15 rifles due to lack of public demand amid excess market capacity. Hmm. In a decision criticized by some gun owners and attributed to mismanagement, Colt said it simply isn't selling enough of the rifles in the civilian marketplace to continue devoting the resources to it. Colt President and CEO Dennis Villeneuve released a statement on Thursday saying, quote, The fact of the matter is that over the last few years, the market for modern sporting rifles has experienced significant excess manufacturing capacity. Given this level of manufacturing capacity, we believe there is adequate supply for modern sporting rifles for the foreseeable future. He added that Colt is seeing high demand in its military and law enforcement sales. All righty then. And you heard that New York's district attorney, Cy Vance, issued subpoenas for Donald Trump's tax returns. Well, now Donald Trump is suing New York district attorney, Cy Vance, for issuing those subpoenas for his tax returns, per a statement from Trump's lawyer, Jay Sekulow. The lawyers argue that the grand jury subpoena for his tax returns is invalid because a sitting president can't be prosecuted, and that extends to, quote, criminal process. So, in other words... Or when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. Yeah, he subscribes to the Richard Nixon school of what's legal and what isn't. And finally, Friday is the global climate strike. One of the best-known faces of climate action is a 16-year-old from Sweden named Greta Thunberg. She testified before Congress on Wednesday and delivered an unusual opening statement. My name is Greta Thunberg. I have not come to offer any prepared remarks at this hearing. I am instead attaching my testimony. It is the IPCC Special Report on Global Warming of 1.5 degrees Celsius, the SR 1.5, which was released on October 8, 2018. I am submitting this report as my testimony because I don't want you to listen to me. I want you to listen to the scientists. And I want you to unite behind the science. And then I want you to take real action. Thank you. No, Greta. Thank you. Seriously. And with that, we've reached the end of another edition of the broadcast. I know you join me in sending only the best thoughts and best wishes and prayers, if you do that sort of thing, to Brad Friedman and his family. I'm Nicole Sandler, holding down the fort while Brad is with his family at a very, very difficult time. Thank you for bearing with me. In fact, I'll be back for the next edition of the broadcast, too. In the meantime, as Brad always says, good luck, world.
Hey, it's Nicole Sandler, your Bradcast guest host. I just want to thank you for hanging with me while Brad and Desi are out. I also wanted to let you know how you can check out my show. We're also heard on the Progressive Voices Network at 5 p.m. Eastern to Pacific. Our shows are archived on YouTube. Just go to youtube.com slash Nicole Sandler. And you can get the podcast. It's always posted at NicoleSandler.com, but it's also available on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening.